Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians. We're entering in to the final chapter of Philippians. Finally, I hear you say, uh, chapter 4, please, in the verse 1. We're thinking today under the title, Ingredients for Spiritual Stability. Ingredients for Spiritual uh, Stability. Uh, Philippians, please, in the chapter 4. And we're reading from verse 1. Of course, this is the word of the Lord. And we read, Therefore, my beloved brethren, dearly, therefore, my be- brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Eudius and I beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which laboured with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other of my fellow labourers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to each of our hearts. Now I'm not a keen baker or anything like that, but I know that many from many of our church suppers that there are many wonderful bakers found within our congregation. And of course, in order for a cake or a cupcake or a bun or whatever it is that you're baking, for it to be baked correctly, you need to use the correct ingredients and follow the instructions found in the recipe. Otherwise you end up with something most likely inedible and looking nothing like the original intended product. And then the verses that we have read together here in the passage today, as we dig deeper into the text, we'll find Paul's ingredients for spiritual maturity, for spiritual stability. And we know that a major theme that is ran throughout the book of Philippians is living in unity with one another as God's children. It's a mark of a godly church. And it's a key ingredient for spiritual stability. You see, the truth of the matter is that we live in an age that what some people might call an individualistic society. A society where we depend on others less than maybe we would have done in the past. Years ago, apparently, neighbours used to go in and out of one another's homes and they would have exchanged bottles of milk and little dishes of sugar and so on. And even come in when the door was open for a chat, they would sit down and have a conversation with you. Now that's not done anymore. In fact, perhaps in your neighbourhood, to even take an interest in your next door neighbour can sometimes be seen as intrusive. And really when you think about it, in this individualistic age, we, we don't cooperate as much as we should with our various gifts and abilities that we have. Many people fly solo And I fear that because of the individualistic lifestyles, there is a danger that when as believers, when we fall out with other people in the assembly, that there isn't a great pressure put upon us to put the thing right, because basically our lives, to a large extent, don't need anyone else. 
You know, the biggest problem today is that this individualistic mindset from the world has marched straight through the church door. The church has left the door open to this sinful practice. In an individualistic age, we can be out of harmony with our brother or sister in Christ, or even a group of brothers and sisters, and think that it doesn't matter. Or perhaps we can think that we can fly solo and do our own thing, that we don't need the brethren round about us, we don't need their gifts and their ministries and their resources that they've been given by the Lord. We can go on and we can get on on our own. Well, that's not a biblical model. That's not, why God, that's not why God designed the local church. Well, in these verses, Paul, as he writes, puts an end to any type of individualistic thinking. And he gives us three ingredients for spiritual stability. And they're very, very obvious. In fact, you find these three things in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And the first of those is this. It's love, love, love. Paul's love for them. Hopefully this will work. There we go. Paul's love for them. Look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crying, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Paul writes to the church in Philippi with a heart of compassion and love. He has told them of their example let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He has taught them to live in unity. And now he's going to tell them of their need for love one towards the other. But firstly, he speaks of his personal love towards them. They were his dearly beloved. He, doesn't, he didn't just say that he liked them. He said he loved them. And he didn't just say that he loved them. He said that he loved them dearly. And he regarded them as being, along with himself, children of the same Heavenly Father by the merits of Christ at Calvary and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now you need to pause there. You need to think about this. Paul certainly is a trophy of grace. Do you remember how Paul has told us earlier in this letter that at one time he was a proud Pharisee? He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the best of the best. He lived to the Lord to an absolute T. And as a Pharisee, he was aware of his own privileged position as a Jew. And he was a man who once looked down on everybody else. He looked down at the Gentiles. And in another book, he actually calls the Gentiles dogs. But now, through the cross, he calls his Gentile believers, those others who hadn't been Jews, he calls them brother. My dearly beloved. You know, dearly beloved in the Greek, the original text is one word that's used also in Matthew's gospel to describe the Father's love for God the Son. And Paul's love for these saints at Philippi was patterned on God the Father's love for his dear Son. Now think about that. Does that not bring a stinging rebuke to our hearts today? What a difference there is between the love that Paul had for the saints and the half-hearted affection that we have for one another sometimes in the local church. Like really, the question is, dear child of God today, do you love the brethren? Do you love the family of God? If we loved each other the way Paul loved these saints, then our lives would not be marked by selfishness and our churches would not be marked by strife. 
Yes, there will be faults and failures in your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's faults and failures in me. I'm sure you've seen many of them already. But the question is, do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Is the mark of the new birth in Christ evident in your life? And is it an, it's an ingredient, you see, for spiritual stability? Look at the verse again. He says of this church that they're my joy and my crown. My joy, that's the present. My crown, he's speaking about the future. Paul had the joy of pointing many of these Philippian believers to the Saviour. And now he sees them developing and maturing and growing and he rejoices. And what joy filled the heart of the Apostle as he thought of them and as he prayed for them, as he wrote to them and as he visualized them, visualized them, the prison walls that he was sitting in as he wrote in that prison cell, they melted away and time seemed to change into eternity and earth receded and heaven appeared. And Paul could picture himself answering to his name at the roll call of the judgment seat of Christ as he heard the Lord's well done and saw himself receiving a crown and Paul he'd seen so many of these souls one for Christ and he was looking forward to the crowning day dear believer the prize day is coming and when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ will there be those standing with you like Paul who you can call your crown because through your witness and your passion for the Lord and your praying, they were one for Christ. Oh, no Paul's love for the church in Philippi. No Paul's love for the brethren. They weren't perfect. But he loved them the way Christ loves the church. Paul's love for them. But think of Paul's plea for them to love one another. Look at verse 2 and verse 3. Paul is calling for practical love here. I beseech Eudius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Here's two ladies from the church fellowship and they've fallen out. They're having some kind of dispute. We never hear about that these days. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help these women which laboured with me in the gospel with Clement also and with my fellow labourers whose names are in the book of life. Here's two sisters. And they've fallen out. Now many of you will recall as we began studying Philippians, we briefly considered the beginnings of the church in Philippi. It was in Acts 16, down by the riverside. Paul and his companions, in responding to the word of God, had gone to Macedonia. And they made their way into Philippi. And upon reaching Philippi, they were discovered that there was no synagogue, no place of worship there. And they went down to the river and they found this group of women who were involved in praying together. And one of these women, Lydia, uh, was a worshipper of God. And she found that in that encounter with the apostles, her eyes were open to the truth. And she moved from being somebody who devoutly was interested in God to becoming a lady who actually knew God and was transformed by the power of the Spirit of God. And she was made a member of God's family. And Lydia is the only lady mentioned there in Acts 16. But it does mention that there were other women present. And it's at least possible. We don't know this. That these two individuals who are mentioned in Philippians 4 verse 2 were maybe part of that original group in the fledging church down there by the river. That they were perhaps part of the founding membership of the local church in Philippi. And if so, then a disagreement between them, such as is confronted here, would have had all the potential of drawing others into their argument and causing serious disunity within the church of Christ, in the body of Christ. Either way, 
It's clear that these two women were important to the work of the Lord. And they had a dispute to settle. And Paul calls on them to settle this. He says, be of the same mind in the Lord. He beseeches them. Now nobody doesn't beseech. He doesn't say, I beseech Eudius and Syntyche. He says, I beseech Eudius and beseech Syntyche. He, he, he pleads with them both individually. And he says, be of the same mind in the Lord. What we know about these women is that they were Christians. I wonder, are you here today and maybe you're not a Christian, you're not saved? I wonder, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? You see, look at what it says in verse 3 about these women. It says, what we know about these women is that they were Christians. And it says there, and with, it says, whose names, so excuse me, the last phrase, whose names are in the Book of of life, Their names were written in the book of life, along with Clement and other fellow workers. We're told that in verse 3. You know, the New Testament speaks of Christians in all kinds of ways. And one of the things that it says of a Christian is that, that they have their names entered into God's book of eternal record. Is your name in God's book of eternal record? Is it? Have you ever came to Christ? Realizing your sin and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, is your name found in that eternal record? You see, if your name isn't found in that eternal record, you won't be welcomed into heaven one day. And of course, it's God who enters the name's end. And it's God who by his Spirit draws men and women to himself, thereby making it possible for their names to be entered. And these women were Christian women, and they were committed women, and they were committed to the gospel. Look at what it says in verse 3. It says, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help these women, and look at this, which laboured with me in the gospel. These were two women who were active. They, They were busy about the Lord's work, and yet they were still arguing. They had contended at the side of Paul in the case of the gospel along with Clement and other workers. And these ladies, they were Christian ladies. Their names were in the book of life. They were committed Christian ladies. They were actually seeking to live and play an active role in the church of Christ. And they were happy to be in the company of others who were equally committed. They were busy about the Lord's work. They were busy working with groups of Christians to win other souls for Christ. That, however, didn't stop them from arguing with one another. And their disagreement, or the nature of which it was disclosed, was significantly striking for Paul to mention them by name. There's not many times you find Paul mentioning people's names like this. Could you imagine sitting in the church in Philippi? Your names, and and they're, they're reading the letter out from Paul some Lord's Day morning. And then your two names are mentioned. Maybe your name and another brother or sister you haven't been getting on with for a while. Paul writes in in a bit of shock and Paul writes and puts your name and that brother or sister that you've been in strife with for a while and says to you, well I, I plead with you, would you be of the same mind in the Lord? Would you find agreement? Wonder is there someone that you need to settle something with today? We have a mission coming up this year. We have lots of gospel efforts coming up this year. I want to tell you something. The devil is going to seek to sow disunity. He's going to seek to cause problems and issues. We need to be found on our knees and have humble hearts. 
Because it's when there's unity that the Lord commands the blessing. If we want to see the Lord move, if you have a dispute to settle, get it settled today before the Lord. I say with Paul to you, be of the same mind with that brother or sister in the Lord. Paul calls them to put their differences aside aside and to exercise the first ingredient of spiritual stability in all its practicalness, love one another. Now this little phrase that Paul writes in the Lord is crucial because it's this more than any other thing which explains to whom they belong. These women have to remember, as do you and I, that we are not our own. That we belong to him. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, we read, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And when I forget that I'm not my own, when I forget that I belong exclusively to Christ, then I begin to very quickly champion my own agenda to establish my own cause, to fight my own rights, to get my own horse, to dispute with anyone who doesn't agree with the fact that I have this legitimate agenda on the strength of who I am, that I believe in what I desire. The Christian isn't called to be like that. Our agenda should run close with Christ. These ladies have already heard the story of the Saviour's condescension in chapter 2. They've heard about his suffering, his sacrificial renunciation for the sake of others. They have seen the mind of Christ as a selfless mind. He took on flesh. That think He thought of others and not himself. The mind of Christ was a serving mind. And the fact that Christ came to serve, not to be served. The mind of Christ is a sacrificial mind that's prepared to go to the utmost lengths in order that we should be saved. Now Christ, Christ was willing to take that humble place for a sinner that didn't deserve it like you and I. Are you not willing to take the humble place in that argument? I know how it goes. Well, they should be saying sorry. I didn't do that much wrong. If they should be apologizing, and I won't be saying anything first, I'll wait until they come to me. Is that like a Christ-like manner? It's not. Dear believers, you sit at the Lord's table later on this afternoon. Ask yourself the question, did Christ insist in his own way? Did Christ insist in his own will? Can you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane? What's he praying? Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thy will. Is it not time that we were done with quarrelings and bitterness and show the love of Christ to that brother or sister? Life's far too short to hold spite. I mean, you're losing out. Charles Swindle says the peace and joy and contentment that could be yours is draining away like water down the drain of an unplugged bathtub. Do you know why your pursuit of joy is on hold? Maybe because you've not made it right with your fellow believer. I mean, when are you going to start to reveal that mind of Christ that we talk about if you aren't willing to reconcile with your fellow believers? Oh, the first ingredient is love. And it's a sacrificial love. I wonder, is it marked in your life? The second ingredient that we find here is joy. Joy, look at verse 4. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Dear believer, what are you to be found doing? It says rejoice. 
In whom are you, be, are you to be found rejoicing? And it says, rejoice in the Lord. And when are we to rejoice? It says, always. Perhaps the spirits of the Philippian believers had been down outside pressure from the enemies of the cross and now division on the inside had discouraged them. So Paul told them, rejoice. In this letter, the word rejoice is used nine times and the word joy is used five times. And now when Paul exhorted the Philippians to rejoice, he wasn't asking them to seek happiness. Joy is not happiness. Joy is a relationship. You know, the children's chorus puts it quite well. Joy is a flag flying high from the castle of my heart. Why? For the king is at residence there. It's a relationship. That's where the joy is found. The problem is that some Christians have joy so deeply rooted in their lives that it rarely comes to the surface. Maybe you're sitting here today and you say, I can't rejoice, Peter. My health. How can I rejoice? Look at what I'm going through. Look at what I'm suffering. I can't rejoice. I have children who aren't saved. My, my children are putting me through a nightmare. I can't rejoice. My husband's not saved. I wish he was saved. And here comes Paul and he says, rejoice in the Lord. I say again, rejoice. I'm sure very few of us could rejoice in our circumstances. He doesn't ask us to rejoice in all our circumstances. He asks us to rejoice. Look at the verse, in the Lord. In the Lord. But the only way to rejoice in the Lord is to have harmony with the Lord and harmony with the Lord's people. When the source of all your rejoicing is the Lord, you'll be able to say with Habakkuk, he said, although the fig tree will not blossom, neither shall fruit be on the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Speaking of a terrible harvest, a terrible time in his life, what does Habakkuk say? He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. It's not circumstances, it's relationship. At times we can't rejoice in the things that are happening around us, but praise God, we can always rejoice in the Lord. Verse 5. Let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. He's saying that everyone see that you're Considerate to all people and all that you do because the Lord is coming soon. Another translation puts it, let your gentleness or your forbearing spirit be evident to all. Let all men know and recognize your unselfish considerateness. You know, that word there, moderation in verse 5, has been, can be translated in various ways. It can be translated as yieldingness, gentleness, big-heartedness. Sweet reasonableness. Paul uses the same word in Second Corinthians 10 verse 1 when he says, Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. What is Paul saying? He's saying just this. Let all the world know that you can meet someone halfway. I wonder, dear Christian, do you have a reputation of gentleness? Now Paul is not talking about doctrinal or ethical compromise. Think of the context. Two women have been have fallen out in the church, each determined to have their own way, insisting on their own rights, not willing to yield ground. So Paul says, let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to all men. Why are many of the Lord's people so unreasonable? 
They forgo even common courtesies in their determination to have their own way. Surely if anyone should be gentle, it's the child of God. Surely if anyone should be prepared to go the second mile, it's a believer in Christ. Let your reasonableness, let your moderation be known to you all why the Lord is at hand. Or as an old translation puts it, the Lord's at your elbow. You see, the Lord is near to you, child of God, beholding you. He sees your every situation, pierces your every intent, and is grieved by anything that's not Christ-like. The Lord is near upholding us. For it's far from easy to be forbearing, and God's people sometimes can be difficult to bear. But the Lord's with us to help us. We need to help show the gentleness. We need help to show the gentleness of Christ, and the Lord is at hand to help us, and the Lord is there with us at all times. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. They had every reason to be annoyed and to shout abuses to those who had put them in there. But do you remember what happened? They were beaten. Now that wasn't just a few punches from the soldiers, they were brutally beaten. Maybe a whip would have been used during the beating. That's a possibility. This beating probably would have left scars. And then they were thrown into prison. And in that situation where you and I would feel robbed of all joy, we read these words in Acts 16.25, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Now I don't know about you, But for me, the kind of joy that gets you singing in jail at midnight is the type of joy that I want to cultivate. In our culture of instant gratification and constant amusement, it's hard to understand the suffering the apostles endured for the sake of the gospel. For many of us, we'll do anything to avoid trials and tribulations. But quite often in an attempt to uh, uh, to keep anything uncomfortable from touching us, we miss the very thing that God wants us to, wants to use to lead us to joy in Him. That's what James tries to tell us in James 1. He says, my brethren, count it all, here's our word, joy. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. The truth and reality for all of us is that we can't avoid difficulties and troubles. But we have a God who can even use the most horrible circumstances to draw us closer to him and bring us joy. I'm finished. We'll come back to the next ingredient. Where our time is done, we'll come back to the next ingredient after Easter. But let me finish with this illustration. In his autobiography, Just As I Am, Billy Graham tells about being invited for lunch at the home of one of the world's wealthiest men on the island in the Caribbean. Throughout lunch, the 75-year-old man seemed to seemed close to tears. And finally he said, I'm the most miserable man in the world. He says, I can go anywhere I want. I, can, I have my private plane. I have my helicopters. I have everything I want to make my life happy. But I'm miserable. No joy. The Grahams talked and prayed with the man, doing their best to point him to Christ, who alone would be able to give him the deep meaning of life that he sought. After leaving that beautiful home, the Grahams returned to the small cottage where they were staying on the island. That afternoon, the pastor of the local Baptist church came to call. 
In spite of his limited resources and difficult situation, he was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ. And that pastor said, I don't have two pounds to my name, he said with a smile, but I'm the happiest man on the island. And after the pastor left, Billy Graham turned to his wife and asked, Who do you think is the richer man? Ruth Graham didn't need to reply, for the answer was obvious. What the rich man was seeking for was joy, a reason to laugh and forget his troubles. What the pastor had already found was a deep-seated joy based not on what he possessed, but on who possessed him. Jesus Christ. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone. But for eternity. Nehemiah 8 and verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength.